So has anybody ever called you a name and it stuck with you? <laughs> and sometimes those names are fun, like my dad used to call me as a kid, he would call me Blakey Boy. And one time when I'm in college, I'm back home, and uh, Sean and I don't even think we're dating yet. We were friends. She called me, and Dad answers the phone, and it's, she asked for me. That was back in the day where you actually had one phone. Remember that? So we, got, like, we actually didn't have our own phone. So he's like, Blakey boy. And, I, you know, I, I heard that for a while. That, that name stuck with me, and uh, Sean used that against me for a little while. Or, like, bless my nephew's heart, Thomas, who is a freshman in college this year. When he was in ninth grade, we went to watch him play basketball at his high school. And after the game, and, and uh, both my daughters, so uh, Brooke and Autumn, who uh, are both around, they're all around the same age and grown up, you know, doing stuff together and all. So they're, they're, they're buddies. And after the game, we're talking with Thomas, and this cute little girl walks by and says, Hi, T-Dog. <laughs> that poor guy is going to be T-Dog, I think, for the rest of his life with his cousins. They will never let him live down that nickname, T-Dog. You know, sometimes names are fun like that, and we can laugh about them a little bit, but sometimes they're not so fun. Like the kid who's a little bit overweight and gets, gets labeled fatso. Or the kid that's maybe not the brightest kid in the class, and everybody calls that kid stupid. Or the one that maybe isn't the most popular and gets labeled as irrelevant. And those names can, can stick with you. Um, you know, sometimes, even as adults, those names can kind of stick with you. And it may not be, or maybe it is, that you have a spouse or a family member or a boss or a so-called friend, or somebody in your life that does call you those names, and that causes it to stick with you, and it makes it hard to shake it. But you know what I think is even more dangerous for most of us? It's not the voice of somebody else calling us those names. It's our own internal voice. That we call ourselves those things, and we, we get identified by these names. Let, let me tell you, today we're going to jump into some scripture where God calls you a name. But you don't have to brace yourself for this one. This is a good name to be called. Let's jump in to 1 John chapter 3 today. And look at what God calls us. See what great love the Father has, has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. See, God doesn't call us a name out of spite or hate or anger. God calls us a name out of love. And the Bible tells us that because of God's love, we are called Children of God. Now, that word called can mean to label somebody something, but it really has a, a deeper meaning. It means to invite or to summon. So think of it in, in both of those terms. Our label is that, that our identity is that we're children of God, but, but also know that God is calling us or inviting us, summoning us into relationship with Him. And now I can think of no greater honor than to be called by God's name. You know, your name indicates your family relationship. 
For example, when my sweet wife was born on December 18th of a year that will remain unnamed, she was given two names, Sean Renee. That was her first and middle name that her parents had to decide what names to give her. But her last name was already decided because her father's name is Ladd. That was her, her mom and dad's name. And so she was named Sean Renee Ladd because you take on the last name of your family relationship. 22 years later, that name got changed. This time, not a name that was given to her, but a name that she chose. She chose to take on the last name Switzer because she married me and she became part of our family. See, your, your family relationship determines your name. A lot of times we think about being born and we use the phrase children of God and that's true in the sense that God has created all people and that's why everybody has value and worth and all those kinds of things. But there's another aspect of that that you know, we're really not a part of God's family until we choose to enter that family. You're really not born into God's family. You have to choose to take that name on. Now, God invites that, that gives us that opportunity, and he invites us into his family, but we have to respond to that. So the question is, how do we respond? Well, we respond in faith to what he has done, knowing that Jesus took on human flesh, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He did all of this for us so that we could be brought into his family. And the Bible says that this is the greatest expression of God's love, is this invitation that, that Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sins and said, I'm willing to forgive you. If, if you'll receive this, if you'll accept it, if you'll put your trust in me and believe that I am the only way that you can have relationship with the Father, if we put our trust in Christ, then, then we're invited into his family. And we're allowed to take on the, the, the name of God. We're, we're, we're called children of God at that point. You know, I can think of no greater expression of love than to invite someone into your family. I mean, some of you maybe even here uh, with us today have made that decision either through adoption, maybe through a fostering ministry of bringing people into your family. I mean, I think about some of our closest friends. They have adopted uh, their daughter from overseas, and she went from getting minimal care in an orphanage to now being a part of a family who loves her deeply and is part of a, of a great family. That is, to me, one of the ultimate expressions of love is to welcome somebody into your family. Or as many in our church do, they open the, their, their homes to foster children, to kids in situations in, in very, very difficult places where they're able to be pulled out of a harmful situation and brought into, even if it's temporarily, even if it's not permanently, they're, they're brought into that family for a period of time so that they can experience uh, love and a safe place as things should be. That's what God does for us. The ultimate expression of God's love for us is that he would invite us and he does invite us into his family. The question is this, I mean, that's God's invitation to you. But if you haven't responded to that, why not? 
Why would we not respond to an invitation from God saying, I want you to be part of my family? You know, there are some invitations that you don't want to pass up. And this is one of them. God invites us to to, uh, become part of his family. And so, because God loves us, that's where we're we're kind of starting today is with this big overarching uh, place to begin. Because God loves us, he summons us into his family. He calls us into his family. It's up to us to respond in faith to that. But once we do, there are some other things that we see in this passage, and we'll read a few more verses together here in just a minute, that are going to be true about us as children of God. So once you take on that name of God and you're born into his family, what do we know to be true about us at that point? Here's one thing we know to be true is that we will be misunderstood by the world. We will be misunderstood by the world. And he says it this way, uh, it says the reason, verse 1, the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And John seems to be taking this same idea from something Jesus said that he recorded in his gospel in John 15 where Jesus said, you know, if if the world hated me, they're going to hate you also. If they don't get who I am, they're not going to get who you are. And so we will be misunderstood. Here's my advice and my encouragement for us as followers of of Christ is to expect that and to not be so easily offended by it. I mean, we should expect that, right? We should understand that as believers, there are going to be those outside the family of God that aren't going to understand. They're going to call us names like narrow-minded because we believe that there's one way to heaven. We don't have to get all worked up about that. When someone calls us homophobic or hateful or outdated simply because we hold to a biblical teaching of sexuality, we don't have to get angry about that and offended by that. We should expect that. And we should continue to live in love. We should continue to develop relationships with those who believe differently than we do. Um, But we should expect it, right? We should understand that that is something that is going to come just because it says if the world doesn't know me they're not going to really know you you're you're going to be misunderstood going to be misjudged and by the way we need to make sure that we are being misjudged based on our our um, commitment to christ and to his word not on our own um, hateful attitudes and, and those kinds of things second thing that we know to be true about us as followers of jesus is that we will be made like him when he returns. We'll be made like him when he returns. Verse 2, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall all be like him, for we shall see him as he is. A lot of times we talk about the fact that we are a work in progress, and that is so true. I am a work in progress, as you are. The key word, though, here is progress. Right? That we are making some progress. But you know the day is coming when we will no longer be a work in progress. The day is coming where progress becomes completely uh, a moot point because we will be changed. We will be transformed to be like Jesus. The way it's put in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
You see, that, that day's coming when this sinful nature that we battle against every single day will be done away with. That's going to be a glorious day, isn't it? Where we don't have to fight against all these, these sinful desires that are in us. That's going to be done away with. We are going to be transformed to be like Jesus. I can't wait for that day to come. On Wednesday night this week, um, when I got home, our youngest, Autumn, was still in town. She's now gone back to school, but uh, she was in town to do some tests and doctor visits and things this week. And, and uh, we were talking Wednesday night, and, and she raised this question. She said, why do people live so long in the Old Testament? And that kind of got us down that, that path of people, you know, living to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And, and we talked about that a little bit, but she had an interesting comment. She said, I wouldn't like that. I don't want to live that long. I said, yeah, but they were, you know, they were in better health and somebody who was 90 years old, you know, wasn't necessarily like they would be today. And she goes, yeah, but still, I, I wouldn't want to live that long. And I thought about it and I thought, I agree. You know, when we, when we look at what we have to look forward to, when we look at what heaven's going to be like and what, that, that, that we're going to get out of this battle of sin, I'm like, yeah, I think she's right. Um, look forward to that day. When we will be changed. And then verse 3 says that all who have this hope in them purify themselves. So this hope is this hope of being changed and being like Christ and being transformed. So he's speaking to those who are part of the family of God. And what he's saying is this, that, that our expectation of our meeting with Jesus causes us to want to purify ourselves right now. We want to start getting ready right now. It, it blows my mind to tell you guys this. But six weeks from today, I will be standing here in front of you with a daughter who's married. Now that, that's kind of mind-blowing to me, uh, but it is almost upon me and upon us. Uh, those of you that do not know Brooke and Autumn, I think we may even have a little, little picture. That's something they just sent us from their, they, they had this little tradition of going to the corn maze in Lubbock together every fall, and so they just sent us a picture a couple days ago. So there they are, cute little couple. They'll be married six weeks from today, or actually six weeks from Friday, but when I stand here in six weeks. But here's what I have come to learn about the process of getting ready to get married. I'm a guy. I didn't know all that went into getting ready, right? I had no idea how much time, how much energy, how much money is involved in getting everything just right for that day when she will 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 see her loved one, right? I mean, everything from the, you know, the makeup artists that come to do their makeup, to fix their hair, to the dress that I still haven't seen yet, uh, to, you know, be tailored just right and fit just right and everything. I mean, there is a lot that goes into preparing for that day when she will be joined together with the one that she loves. I didn't know there was that much that went into it. Now, I knew enough to know that I didn't expect her to show up with mud splattered across her face, you know, hadn't brushed her hair and, or, or, or brushed her teeth maybe in a couple of weeks, you know, wearing those extra large sweatpants that she loves that are like four times too big for her. You know, I knew that wasn't going to happen. I knew there was some level of preparation, but it's given me some new insight. Into when you are preparing to be joined together with the one you love. There's a lot that goes into that. And what this verse is saying is that, that in expectation of the day when we will see our Savior face to face, we get ourselves ready. 
we purify ourselves. We do everything we can uh, to, to get ready on the front end. And then let's continue on and see what that looks like then. Verse 4 and following says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So here's the last main idea that I want to camp out on here for a few minutes. Is this that knowing Jesus changes our sinful patterns. That's what we're saying here. An expectation and preparation for the day that we'll meet him. That, that knowing Jesus changes our sinful patterns. And I think we need to be just honest with ourselves to say this is a difficult passage here. Uh, there are some things that he says, for example, verse 6, that, that anyone who knows him doesn't keep on sinning. He says in verse 8 that if you sin, then you're basically of the devil. Verse 9, no one who, who really knows God and is born of God keeps on sinning. Verse 10 says the way you can tell if you're a child of God is that you do right, love your brother and sister. I mean, if you read these verses and maybe it's a little confusing and maybe even a little bit scary, then welcome to the club. And I think it's important for us to dive in here and, and, and try to uncover what exactly is he saying. And let me encourage you with, and, and there, I'm going to boil this down into three principles for us today. There's more than that. But to apply the right kinds of principles when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Let me give you three things uh, when we interpret a passage like this or any other that will be helpful. Number one is that it's important to interpret Scripture in light of the immediate historical setting. In other words, before we can know what the Bible means to us today, we need to understand what did it mean to them. In that context, what was going on there? What do we know about that culture and that time that will help give us some insight? And an example of that is we know in the time that John wrote this letter that there was this teaching. We talked about this in the weeks past called Gnosticism that was starting to, to come to the surface. And Gnosticism taught that anything physical is evil and anything uh, spiritual or knowledge-based is good, and so what you do with your body really doesn't matter. All that matters is that you have a connection, a spiritual connection with God. Now you can imagine where that would take things if they said what you do in your body doesn't matter. Then it's kind of like, hey, all right, live it up, do what you want, but as long as you have this spiritual connection, and he's saying no, that you can't continue to sin and really be a follower of Jesus. Additionally, we, we talked about the fact last week that there were many antichrists, people who were teaching this, the, the false gospel, and so he's being very strong and confronting that. Here's number two. So the first one, interpret scripture in its historical setting. The second one is interpret scripture in its context. You need to read it in light of what else is around it. Um, for example, coming out of verse or, or chapter 2, where he is talking about knowing the difference between uh, a real anointing and a false anointing and the Antichrist and the false teachers. Understanding that little bit of, of context around it is really, really important. And so we understand why he's being so direct and saying 
that you can't be a follower of Jesus and live this way. And then the, the third thing would be interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. And this one is so important because we know that God's Word does not contradict itself. So we interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture, meaning that if there is something that is a little bit uncertain in our uh, passage that we're reading, that maybe there's another passage somewhere else that will shed light on that. And the reason I say that is because if we took this passage in isolation and we didn't dig into the historical context and we didn't read it in context of what's going around it and, and what other scripture says, here's the conclusion that I think you might come to. Once you become a Christian, you'll never sin again. And if you do sin, you must not really be a Christian. And you, could, you could come to that conclusion if you read just these verses and didn't really apply proper um, principles of, of interpreting scripture so we we've already talked about some of the other things and how they apply but let's also look at what does the rest of the bible say what what do other writers of the new testament have to say about this issue of whether or not you will continue to battle with sinfulness even after coming to faith in christ let's look at peter first peter chapter 2 verse 11 says dear friends Speaking to the believers there, of course. I urge you as foreigners and aliens to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, if he's saying sinful desires war against you and he's urging them to abstain from them, then doesn't that indicate that it's possible for a believer to, 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 to fall into sinful patterns? That's why he's urging them not to do so. Romans 6, this is Paul's writing. Romans 6, 11 and 12, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And the fact that, that he urges them not to let sin reign in their mortal bodies means that it's possible that sin could reign in your mortal bodies, right? So you need to, to fight against that. It's, it's just clear from other places in Scripture, the Bible never teaches that you'll never sin again. In fact, going back to the context of John's writing, you remember chapter 2, verse 1, says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So even John is saying, of course, the goal is not to continue in a pattern of sin, but when you do, remember we have an advocate. That's why Jesus died for us. So he's not teaching that we'll never mess up again, but, but what he is saying here in, in, in verse Six, when it says no one who lives in him keeps sinning, that's actually the same word that we spent a little time talking about last Sunday. It's the word abide. No one who abides in him will continue sinning. So what he's saying is this, that when we are abiding in him, sin won't abide in us. When we are abiding in him, sin won't abide in us. That's really the point. Not that we'll never mess up. But that sin and, and the presence of God, they, they don't go together. And so over time, there begins to be some transformation. There begins to be some change that takes place in our lives so that we don't fall into the same sinful patterns that we used to. We make, again, back to the work in progress thing, right? We're not a completed work yet, but we should be making progress. Share a story with you because sometimes they're just funny. To look back on, but uh, I was thinking about this. I thought, okay, how, how can I see God's progress or God's transformation in my life after coming to faith? And if you don't know my story, I was a high school student when I came to faith in Christ. And 
I look back to times before that, and I think, you know, what were some of the things that, that, that I struggled with? Uh, one of the things that, that would lurk beneath the surface, I'm actually a fairly laid-back person, but I also have this weird other side that I could get really upset about little things that don't matter, right? Just, just kind of react to things that, that, that don't matter. And, and uh, when I was, I don't know how old I was, probably in junior high, I got mad one day. Y'all are going to love this one. I got mad because I didn't like the way my hair looked that day. <laughs> True story. Now, back in that day, it was like little ringlet curls, you know. Um, and I didn't like it. It wasn't doing right. And so I got mad, and I punched the wall. And, like, cracked the sheetrock on the wall because I was upset that my hair didn't look right. Now, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, you know, as I've matured over the years... In my relationship with Christ, I've figured out how to have perfect hair, so it's not an issue anymore. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not, that's not where I want to go. No, what, <laughs> what has happened over the years is that I still sometimes feel that coming up in me, such as being at a TCU game with an obnoxious fan standing behind you screaming the whole time. You know, those, it's a good challenge, you know, especially when your team loses. It's a good challenge. To say, okay, certain things don't matter, right? That the initial response is maybe to get worked up, and then it's like, no, that, that's not who I am. Right? That, that, that doesn't define me. We, we ought to be able to look at those things. Now, I'm not going to tell you for a second that I don't still slip up there and that things that are insignificant don't still make me angry because that does happen. But you get the point, right? We make progress. Let's just say I haven't been punching any holes in any walls in a long time. So... Why does this happen? Why, why, why is it so important that we begin to change? Verse 9, it just makes a very logical argument. He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. See, what he's saying here, and I love this translation, continues to sin. It's taken the, the, the Greek word and the, the tense of it and everything, and that's a good uh, translation. It's just a present tense, but it carries with it the idea of continuing to do something. So really the idea is not no one who knows Jesus will ever sin, but that they won't continue on in those same sinful patterns. Day after day, month after month, year after year. That, no, there's some change that takes place there. Why does that change take place? It says because, because we have God's seed in us. That word seed means anything that has been sown into something. So don't think like you know physical seed. What has been sown into us as followers of Jesus? It's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit has been sown into us. We have been given the Spirit at the time that we trust in Jesus as Savior. So the Spirit is sown into us, and the argument that he's making, and this makes perfect sense, is how are we going to continue in a pattern of rebellion against God when the Spirit of God is living inside of us? There's going to be some conflict there, right? That th those two don't go hand in hand. And so what happens is when we begin down those sinful patterns, the spirit in us begins to bring conviction. And we're like, okay, that's not right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it all gets fixed overnight in every case. But, but at least there's some sense of conviction and of, a okay, I, I need to change this. Yes, I'm a work in progress, but I'm making progress. The seed in us, the spirit in us will not allow us to continue down these sinful patterns. And so 
If we are continuing down those patterns, it means one of two things. Either we have become completely numb to the the prompting of the Holy Spirit in us, which is a very dangerous thing. Or maybe the Spirit's not in us to begin with. Maybe we've convinced ourselves that, that we belong to God when we really don't. Because if He is in us, then He's going to do some work. He's going to bring some conviction. And I wonder if anybody can totally relate to that right now. I wonder if I'm speaking directly to somebody that's like, oh, man, you talk about conviction. You have no idea what the Spirit has been doing in my life and how convicted I've been. And maybe nobody else in your family even knows that that's the case. But you can't get away from it. You can't get away from that, that, that voice, that prompting, that, that desire that's like, I've got to change. That's the Holy Spirit in you. And as miserable as that can make you feel in the moment, that's a good sign. Because it shows that you really do belong to God and that that seed is really in you. And that God is, is bringing you back and he's drawing you back. But we have to respond in faith. We have to be willing to let him do that. When we feel that prompting inside of us, we can't just ignore it or we can't just say, hey, I'll get to that someday. We have to respond. We have to say, yes, I want to submit. And I just want to encourage you by reminding you of this. To be quite honest, that might be painful. That might require some things that you don't really want to deal with. That might require some embarrassment. It might require some difficult conversations. But I'm telling you that when God is drawing us to himself, he does it for our good and for his glory. He always wants what is best for us. So it's always to our benefit to say, yeah, I want to, I want to come back. One of the indications that we belong to him is that we don't continue down the same path of sin that we've always been walking down. But that when we are headed that way, we say, okay, God, that's not the direction I want to go. I want to come back. Is it time to come back today? Maybe to come to Christ for the first time today. Or maybe to come back and say, yes, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to stop living a way that doesn't line up with who I really am. I'm going to give my heart to you fully and trust you. Would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, today I do pray for complete surrender, and I pray that you will draw us, draw our hearts to you. Thank you that you call us into your family. You summon us to be part of of your family, Lord. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for those that maybe aren't there yet, that they would get, uh, just have that, that, faith and that courage to take that step lord for those that are there may be some of us that just need to come back to a right relationship with you and i pray that that happens today even now in jesus name amen